Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Views on View. I am your host, Lindsay Wardell. With me today is special guest, Austin Story. Hi, Austin. Hi, Lindsay. I'm Austin Story. I'm from the sunny state of Missouri in the winter, right? <laughs> oh, is it sunny there right now? Uh, it was a little bit earlier. It just started raining a few minutes ago. Mm, I'm a little jealous. I mean, I'm in Portland, Oregon. This is our first real sunny day in about a week and a half. Uh, winters are very rainy and wet here. So anyway, welcome to the show. Would you mind introducing yourself for those who aren't aware of you? When I went freelance, I was still only a few years into my development career. My first contract, I was paid 60 bucks an hour. Due to feedback from my friends, I raised it to 120 bucks an hour on the next contract. And due to the podcasts I was involved in and the screencasts I had made in the past, I started getting calls from people I'd never even heard of who wanted me to do development work for them because I had done that kind of work or talked about or demonstrated that kind of work in the videos and podcasts that I was making. Within a year, I was able to more than double my freelancing rates and I had more work than I could handle. If you're thinking about freelancing or have a profitable but not busy or fulfilling freelance practice, let me show you how to do it in my Dev Heroes Accelerator. Dev Heroes aren't just people who devs admire, they're also people who deliver for clients who know, like, and trust them. Let me help you double your income and fill your slowdowns. You can learn more at devheroesaccelerator.com. Yeah, so uh, Austin Story from Missouri, USA. And I am currently a, a senior engineer at Doximity, and I manage a couple teams there related to kind of like cross-organizational team infrastructure that we maintain. Awesome. We'll get into Doximity in just a minute, but I'm curious, how did you get into uh, programming from the beginning? From the beginning, the long, long ago. Yeah, so I mean, it's a long story. I mean, I, in, in high school, I did a little bit of programming. First webpage was, I think, like 98, somewhere in that area. We just happened to get lucky and our school had some computers and made my first website then. College, I was didn't know what I wanted to do really. So I wanted to pick a hard major. That's all that I knew that I, I wanted to do. I, I liked mathy type things. So I was up in the air between a couple engineering things and computer science. And I picked computer science. Ended up being a, a really good fit. I liked it a lot. Learned A to 95, uh, which was really, really cool to see how like super strongly typed languages work that will just run if they compile. Then after that, I had a, a break for a while and got back into programming in about 2009-ish. Started doing more like MySQL and PHP. And I, I remember reading this book called uh, e-commerce, uh, MySQL, PHP, and I think some, some other, probably Apache or something like that. And I went through that whole book and I was like, man, this is super, super complicated. So I, uh, I, it just didn't stick with me. Um, I like PHP, but it just, I, I didn't fall in love with it. And then I switched back over to like network management. So I was an information security engineer for a couple of years or a year, year and a half. Then I had my own company for a while where I was like managing infrastructure and applications. And that's whenever I found Rails. Whenever I was in information security, I did some Ruby and Lua and MySQL and that, that sort of stuff for like managing infrastructure for like endpoints at, at banks and that sort of stuff. And, but it was whenever I found Rails that I was like, yes, this is, this is the way that I like things. I like ecosystems that are complete where, you know, you don't have to understand like everything that's going on and make all of the decisions in order to get something working. Made a, a few apps. I still have one that's like a software as a service that's live. And about five years ago, I got into single page apps while I was consulting. It's part of like, you know, Angular, React, 
And then at Doximity, we moved to Vue about four years ago, um, around that time. And we've uh, I've been helping move things over to Vue from from Rails ever since then. Awesome. I think it's interesting. You're you're one of the the few that I've asked that question to that came from the back end to the front end, but didn't start with Laravel to find PA, to find Vue. <laughs> Uh, you started with Rails, which is interesting. What what led you from Rails to the single page application world? Well, I mean, I, I kind of went kicking and screaming. I was very much a Rails Kool Aid person. I still am. I still love, absolutely love Rails. It's my go to whenever I just need to build something uh, by myself. Uh, but I was on a consulting gig, and uh, they just happened to be using Angular One with Rails on on the back end. And uh, so I, it was like, hey, you know, do do you want to learn this? It's like, ah, sure. I'll see see how it works and then learn that the uh, developer, like the lead there was just exceptional. He was, he was very, very tight code base. It was actually a great Angular project to work on. Very clear and concise, it was pretty amazing. Uh, and then was a part of a rewrite of a that, that same application whenever a leadership change happened. Uh, they wanted to move over to React and then like a different backend uh, like Neo4j. And so it was a part of moving all of that over so learning how the angular concepts mapped over to react pros and cons there really cut my teeth whenever uh, redux was becoming the thing and i remember struggling with that for a while just coming from much more of like an oo type background oo and like more procedural trying to learn like how how that worked and i remember that took about like six weeks of struggling I don't know if I've just got a tiny brain, but that's about how long it takes me to time kind of like for something to click for me. I mean, I think that's fair for Redux in general, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was, uh, it was, it was challenging. And then whenever I moved over to Doximity, they had just went through this like, hey, you know, we're not happy with the, you know, the velocity and really the developer happiness of like what they were doing, uh, which was mostly like Backbone with some jQuery and JavaScript sprinkles and you know some HTML over the wire. And they had evaluated React and Ember, and yeah, I, th- I think there were there were probably a couple others. But like right after they got through with that, that's whenever Vue was, you know, like Vue and React came out at a, you know about the same time. But that's whenever Vue was like really hitting its its upswing in terms of like, I guess like popularity. And the reason that, uh, well, many of the reasons that there were there were several, but like one of the reasons that they ended up going with with Vue for the front end was. There's there's a lot of similarities between the Rails ecosystem and the Vue ecosystem with I guess like cohesion and things being like you know the same and coherent like uh, that's you know just one of the things about JavaScript in general is it can be modular to the point of like you know incoherence I think anyway and they they take a lot of the responsibility of like hey you know like we're a UI library but like you know you're probably going to need a way to manage state you know so like we'll just you know, we'll we'll keep something. You can use whatever you want to, but like if you use our thing, like we'll maintain it, make sure that it stays in step, and you know, same thing with the router and you know, view server render and and all of those sorts of things. So I, I, they really appreciated that, and I did too. And you know, it, it's it's been a good decision. There's you know certainly pros and cons to any decision in tech, but I mean, it, it's worked out pretty well. Nice. Well, I, I assume Doximity was using Rails before you arrived, then. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So Doximity's oh. been around for a little over ten years now, and it's very much a Rails Rails shop. Okay, cool. Let's go into that a little bit. What is Doximity? So Doximity is a medical network, a professional medical network, and number one in the U.S. for physicians. Uh, we provide a, a platform for doctors to collaborate in a you know HIPAA secure manner. Uh, they can do CME, which is continuing medical education. On and then a lot of the 
like advancements that we've made since coronaviruses came out has uh, really reached out and enabled the I mean, doctors all across the United States to be able to contact with patients. So got something called a Doximity Dialer and then our, our video product where they're able to go in and like have video calls. And, and at this point, I, I don't I don't know the exact numbers, but I mean, we've had millions of calls that we've enabled at this point. And I, I think it's now something around like 70% of all medical doctors in the U.S. have a you know verified profile on Doximity. Nice. I Our family doctor is also a good friend of mine. And I, w- I was able to talk to her a bit before this about Doximity and her experience. Oh, cool. And Hopefully positive. One, one of, one, yeah, it was positive. One of the things she liked is being able to keep in touch with people that she met during her residency and kind of see how their careers are going and be able to consult with them as needed. Um, Absolutely. Just kind of have that communication. I feel like that's something that's, that's really important, when you're, especially when you're passing a patient off to a specialist, is having that direct relationship. And she's uh, really appreciated that feature. Absolutely. Yeah. There's there's a lot that I appreciate. You know about about Doximity. There, uh, the the CEO there. He just he really cares about this stuff and making medical in general better. And you know enabling you know physicians to do the things that they need to do in order to you know help patients. Right. So I believe. Correct me if I'm wrong. I believe you gave a ViewConf talk addressing moving from server side uh, rendering view to Nuxt at Doximity. Is that correct? That's right. Okay, so I'd first like to talk, what led you to move from just using Rails and sprinkling on some view for, for reactivity to doing any view server-side at all? So when we, when we first moved over to Vue, we had to make a few decisions up front. And some of the, like, the harder ones uh, that, that we made that are very sticky were that we, we want server-side rendering from the get-go. And we would like to be built as a single page application. And, you know, there's always a lot of reasons to make decisions like that. We could have just put stuff inside of the repo, but there was a, a lot of history related to to that. Whenever they'd moved to Backbone long, long, long time ago, uh, they d- did it kind of in line and they saw like a huge uh, inline, meaning like, you know, single repo, you know, mm-hmm. all of all of the stuff together. Uh, and Rails is very, very conventional about most things, you know, the way that you do routing and controllers and views and models and that sort of stuff, the way that that maps to like your data stores. But it's it's not opinionated at all in the way that you should organize reactivity and JavaScript and, and that sort of stuff. And because of that, there was a huge divergence, you know, like whenever you have a small team, that's not as big of a deal, you know, because you may have like two or three teams, they have you know, two or three different, you know, unique ways of doing things. Uh, but whenever you end up with, you know, and I, I don't know how many people we have committing now, like 80 or 90 to the, to the repo, you know, whenever you, to, to just the view repo, but like whenever you get so many different opinions and like no standard way of doing things, it becomes very difficult to go in and like understand how the search bar works. You know, whenever you have a bug, you have to learn the entire, you know, philosophy of how that works and, you know, and, and unfortunately, I mean, there's just a lot of, you know, and this isn't from Doximity, but just like the, the Rails community in general has had a historically disdainful attitude towards JavaScript in general, you know. And so that permeates down, you know, to the point where like, you know, you get some people that are like, hey, let's do JavaScript writing. And you know, some people that are like, hey, let's just not do JavaScript. <laughs> you know, and right. those people have to do JavaScript and they're not as vested in learning and becoming an expert in the way that that system works versus Ruby and Rails. So anyway, like, we made the decision to just do a split from the get-go. So instead of doing it inline and rendering it a part of like the asset pipeline in Rails, I said, hey, 
different repo. This will be server-side rendered from the get-go, and it will be a single-page app from the get-go. And, you know, pros and cons always, but if, if you're trying to avoid that divergence, that's a very good way to do it. You know, as you're moving things into view from whatever you have, it's like, hey, this is, these are the standards. This is how we do stuff. Gives you a single place to, to know how other people are doing things and find components and, and that sort of stuff. And also, like, last thing is, like, making the decision, like, if we chose to not do server-side rendering anymore, it would be a little bit of work. But if you're not doing server-side rendering or a single-page app and you want to go to that, it is an enormously different task. You know, it's like, hey, we don't want a server-side render anymore. Cool. I can do that, like, and very, very fast, you know. But, like, mm-hmm. oh, we want a server-side render now. It's like, well, we have to re-architect this entire thing, you know. Yeah. One of one of those is definitely not like the other. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. Okay. So you set up server-side rendering with Vue. I'm assuming that's a node. I don't think it Vue can server-side render outside of Node, correct? Well, yeah. I mean, you have a node process. It's it's a library inside of a Vue. I've I've been in there quite a few times, but the thing is like Vue server renderer. Uh, mm-hmm. But and then they got a bundle renderer that handles like basically taking your JavaScript component uh, the Vue to and then just rendering it to some text you serve that okay so so now that you're using that that for your a bit of the back end what was that experience like shifting over from rails I'm just curious on that the experience from my perspective just, just, or from like developers or yeah developers in general i it was you know positive and negative uh i i think we we also i think we took on a lot whenever we were first moving things over because not only did we choose to go to Vue, but we also chose to do GraphQL at the time. Oh, okay. And at the time, I, I felt fairly confident, you know, just having built some complicated, like, Redux stuff, like how to organize a store, you know, how to normalize it and, you know, make it reactive and that sort of stuff. Uh, but GraphQL was like a new thing. And we didn't have, you know, there's still very little expertise in GraphQL out there. I mean, I think there are, are smart people out there, but it's just not as... You know, it's not as widespread, not as pervasive yeah, as, as like REST, which is very clear, you know, at, at least for me, having used it for a long time, you know, how to use it, how to integrate with it. Right. Uh, so so I think that was probably the harder thing. Like the, the hardest thing was not Vue. Vue's always been very simple, uh, at least, you know, for me and like the people that I work with. Where it gets more complicated is using Vue with, you know, Vue Apollo and then integrating that with GraphQL Ruby on the back end and like having conventions for all of that stuff. Cause that, that's the, I think the hard part of the stack in my opinion. And that makes a lot of sense. When I, when I started with JavaScript, seriously, I, I made the conscious decision. I'm always going to write JavaScript as much as I can. So I'll use node, I'll use express, I'll use tools like Nuxt. And, and that way I can use the single language and the single paradigm across the stack. I can, I can only imagine first off switching to using Vue for the front end, but also implementing GraphQL to communicate with Rails at the same time must have been a bit of a challenge just to just to get over that initial integration to the rest of the application. Yeah, it, it really was a lot. You know, luckily, you know, there's another guy named Ryan Stewart that was on the the product side, uh, but we we spent a lot of time trying to understand how it works and how it will work inside of like all that we have. You know, because Doc I mean, you know, ten years of development, like. A lot of microservices, a lot of decisions, a very different ecosystem. There's just a lot that you have to integrate with them and, and do it right uh, so that, you know, you don't end up, you know, exposing people's data or something like that whenever you shouldn't. Right. So what led your team to to look at using Nuxt for server-side rendering instead of the uh, 
the server-side rendering solution that you guys have built internally. Okay. Complexity was was the main reason. So there's quite a bit that you have to understand with how server-side rendering works in a Node Vue.js application. And we just don't have a lot of deep expertise in that domain as we do in Rails. So we found it was difficult for people that needed to go in and make changes to the backend to understand, you know, all the decisions, you know, right, wrong, or indifferent that were made in order to make that system work. You know, it was very heavily based off of the, uh, gosh, the View Hacker News clone. Thank, thank the gods that that existed whenever it did, uh, because it was, it was quite a leg up in, in how to make that stuff work. But I mean, it was just, it was very difficult. It was a lot to maintain. And, you know, if, if you think about where the value is from a, a business perspective of the team, you know, our team adds value to providers when they're working on features that physicians need. They don't add value when they're dealing with all of the complexity related to, you know, JavaScript community, Node community, Express community, Vue community. <laughs> Trying to find out how all of that stuff works together is, is hard. So I actually moved off of that team for a year and did uh, like search for a little while. And then whenever I came back, that was, uh, that was one of the main things that I wanted to do was move to Nuxt. Uh, the system had matured to a point where they have a lot of the things that we, we needed with like middlewares and, and that sort of stuff. But it's really just mounted as a route now in our Express app. I mean, as, a, as an app, as mm -hmm. opposed to like, you know, having full Nuxt all the way down. Your, your microphone just got bumped oh, a little. Sorry about that. And uh, yeah, so now we... Uh, we mount it in Express just as, as a route, as like a, a finally thing. So we can take care of like, you know, any business logic we need before that. But yeah, I mean, it just, it, it really took away a lot of the maintenance related to that. It was, it was huge efforts to do things like upgrade view, uh, you know, view X and that sort of stuff. And now it's you know fairly straightforward. We just keep everything in line with Nuxt, you know, change Nuxt and it just works. Nice. Yeah. I, on my team, we also use Nuxt for a couple internal tools. It's, it's been extremely nice just to be able to spin up the server and start working and watch as things render and as the backend portion of Nuxt is processing data. It, I find it incredibly simple to work with. And for, for us, we use it as kind of like a thin layer that's provided as a, a, a service that then accesses our API. Does that sound accurate for your architecture where you've got Nuxt kind of in the middle between the client and your Rails backend? Yeah, absolutely. So we get we get the yeah, that's that's identical to kind of how we're doing it or similar anyway. Okay. So what what value do you see in using something like Vue or just a JavaScript front end of some sort and then having a Rails back end? Wouldn't it be simpler? And and obviously I'm playing devil's advocate because I don't agree with this, but uh wouldn't it be simpler to just have Rails just right there at the at the edge? and then allow users to fetch that page or access that data directly? Yeah, I mean, uh, 100%, it would be simpler. And also, I mean, I, I, I am a, still a Rails Kool-Aid person, so I, I still like like Rails and the simplicity of that, that ecosystem. Where, where I've personally seen that breakdown is when you have large teams with diverse opinions. It becomes more complicated whenever you have HTML as the primitive, you know, this, this isn't always the case, you know, like you've seen, there's a lot of companies that do this well, you know, like, you know, like Basecamp, you know, they are all in on, on just HTML. And uh, I, I don't know the reasons they are fully able to do that. I, I think it's that they have highly trained 
you know, specialists in Rails and it's a smaller-ish team. But, you know, at least in my experience, it's, it's very easy to get contamination whenever you're doing HTML over the wire as the primitive. And as opposed to doing view as the primitive, it's, it's very simple. It's easy to understand. You know, you can look at a component and be like, okay, these are the things that this component's responsible for. I know where it is. I have view tools. I can see exactly what's going on. View tools is like the, the developer tools for that. Uh, whereas in HTML, I mean, I just, uh, some of my harder bugs have been, you know, whenever there was a, you know, a, a bad or not, not a bad, but like a selector that's not specific enough that just globally munges everything and trying to troubleshoot that has always been difficult. And then that, that problem grows as it gets bigger, you know, like each section of the app has their own like specific way that they do like V-I-E-W, like the actual, you know, rendering view layer. And yeah, it just, it adds a lot of benefits there. And then, you know, I, you can also make an argument for separation of concerns, you know, whenever you're only delivering HTML and you have mobile clients or any other type of client, you know, you have to deliver HTML to the mobile applications, you know, they're going to want to deliver, they're, they're, I mean, not always, but like, you know, most mobile developers are going to want to consume a JSON API. So now you're going to have to maintain your view side, uh, your HTML side and expose JSON and maintain those in parallel, develop them in parallel. Whereas if you expose the data, you know, hey, here's the data that you're getting, you do what you need to with it. And then those apps can move independently how they need to and not step on each other. And, you know, whenever you make a change to your controller, uh, it, it doesn't break, you know, as easily. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. And I, I've stepped into that pit of having to maintain HTML and JSON side by side from a server rather than using the actual view, either the library or whatever HTML you're sending. And it, it definitely gets tricky. I agree there. I'm, I'm going to throw you a curveball because you mentioned HTML over the wire. This is hot off the presses as of, I think, yesterday, as of recording. There's the new Hotwire library that is put out by Basecamp. Have you had a chance to take a look at it yet? Uh, yeah, so I, I read the docs. Uh, okay. I have not tried it out yet. We'll see how it goes. I mean, there's been this promise multiple times in the Rails community. And I, I understand that they're trying to get get it right, figure out what's going to work, you know, for for Rails, for that, that ecosystem. You know, but we've had a few iterations here. Uh, I'll, I mean, I'll, I'll try it out. See, if, I mean, it, it could be, you know, the best thing since sliced bread. I, you know, also like this is, I, I think heavily inspired by Livewire from, or not Live, uh, LiveView from Phoenix. And I, I have some, you know, colleagues that are just all in on that system. But yeah, I don't, I don't know, like delivering HTML edits over HTTP whenever your network is normally your slowest part of this. I, I could imagine easy situations where this will not work very well and get into some weird, you know, ordering situations, you know, like click a button, you know, unclick the button. And then like both of those go to get some HTML and like comes back, you know, like you're still going to have to manage that somehow on the front end. Yeah. It's, it's definitely a tricky problem. Uh, if you're not using something like view, go view, but I'm I'm very interested in where these different tools go. And you mentioned Livewire. Maybe you were thinking of the Laravel Livewire. Yes. They they all have similar names. But yeah, it's it's going to be interesting to see where the, those tools go. Yeah. Have you tinkered with uh, it at all? The the Hotwire thing? I have not yet. No. Of, of the three, I've played the most with Phoenix Live View. It and I enjoy it. I just haven't found a an actual use case that I want to build out for a full project yet. Yeah. I mean, Views uh, pretty pretty known at this point. Rails is pretty known at this point. I have no qualms with 
picking those as like you know my front end and back end you know or or just rails is like the the full thing but leaning onto something like this i i would not put this in production for quite a while you know till i see kind of how it ends up living uh, out there in the ecosystem and get feedback on it yeah I mean, on, on the plus side with Hotwire, if it's the thing they're using internally at Basecamp for hey.com, then there's at least one application in production. But... Exactly, yeah. And then there's sources available, so you can you can go gander at it. There. Hey, folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production. And you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. So I'm, I'm curious, since you very clearly kind of go between these two communities of JavaScript and Rails, what are what are the differences that you see between those two ecosystems or, or even the two communities? I'd say like the, the communities and I mean, more than more than anything with Ruby and JavaScript. With Ruby, I, I would say, you know, it's it's built out of, you know, like the, the creator mats. He is very nice. You know, you have this thing called Miniswan, which is Matt's is nice, so we are nice. And you bleed into Rails, which has this really cool Rails doctrine with some beliefs that's like based out of like, you know, battle-tested things of like keeping things simple and you know, like omakase where like they'll provide you the options, you know, like you can choose what you want, but like by default, you know, like your cookies will be secure and you don't have to wire all of that up. So I, I see a lot more from Ruby, you know, not, not that JavaScript isn't nice, but like you get like a lot more cohesion with things and a lot more, I don't know, just focus on on nice, being being nice and kind. And then just from it being an OO language, it, you end up with really good APIs for, you know, interacting with things. With JavaScript, I'd, I'd say it's it's much more modular. And it, it, it's weird because like the, the languages are very similar in age, you know you know, about, you know, 20, 25-ish years, somewhere in that area. But JavaScript just feels newer, you know, like Ruby and Rails is very battle-tested. You know, things will mostly just work. JavaScript, I mean, slowed down quite a bit recently, but, you know, there's a lot of like new, you know, and a lot of new ideas being pushed forward and, and that sort of stuff. And that's how we get into some like really cool things, like, you know, Vue's like a great example of that, you know? So yeah, I mean, those are like the, the bigger differences. So like JavaScript is much more modular, you know, like build your own thing, you know, assemble everything together. And then, you know, Ruby and Rails is like all in one cohesive. And I, th I think that's why, like, you know, we ended up pushing for, for Nuxt is for the, the cohesion there and like the not having to make all the decisions. Like we still have to make quite a few decisions, but like a lot of them are, are made, you know. Yeah, I, I definitely have experienced the, the modularity part of the JavaScript ecosystem. I mean, you go on Twitter and you start talking about Vue, eventually you'll find someone talking about React or Svelte and all these different frameworks. I think approaching Ruby, that's that's one of the things I like that Rails is kind of the de facto standard. Yeah. I don't I'm not even aware of another real competitor to Rails in in the ecosystem. Yeah. Yeah, that integration is is the biggest thing. Like you know, if you look at like the percentage of developers, you know, and JavaScript and you know even Java are consistently like, you know, 18 or 20% of developers do that thing. But you know, each each of those languages just have so many different ways of doing things, you know, you know, it's like you have Electron developers and Vue and React and Node and Dino and all these things. And then you know, Ruby has like, you know, 2% of the population and everybody does Rails, <laughs> you know, except right. for like a few people that do Hanami. And I, I think there's a, uh, I, actually, I think their name changed recently, but like, 
there, there's a couple others there. Yeah, you know, but I mean, also like if, if you look at like the some of the constraints that cause that, you know, like Ruby has the benefit of running on a single runtime. You know, you're going to run on some Linux box somewhere, and it's always going to be the same. You know, JavaScripts. I think a lot of the decisions for modularity. You know, I have to do with some of the like language choices there with the way that it's built, but also, you know, it has to work in so many different environments, you know, it has to work on every browser, it has to be right on every single browser, which is just incredible. Like, I, I think it's, it's amazing, you know, just knowing all the stuff that's involved in these, like, you know, it's pretty amazing that sometimes it even, you know, <laughs> thing like boots up, you know, <laughs> like, right. of the constraints out there. Yeah. One of, one of the thoughts I have sometimes when people are talking about, we want browsers to, you know, we want choice in our browsers. We want to have things like Firefox that are using a different engine. And for, in principle, I agree. But then at the other end, I'm like, no, we want one runtime. Then we don't have to think about it. Yeah. It'd be it'd be really nice if JavaScript just had the one runtime that was just good for everybody. And you could predict exactly how it works on every machine. But that's that's not the world that, that JavaScript lives in. Yeah, it is not the world. But you get that in Ruby. And that's nice. Yeah. Another another point where JavaScript I feel is very modular is is looking at tests and writing either unit tests or integration and end tests, what have you. I feel like there's a whole bunch of different tools. Just to get started, you have to make a whole bunch of decisions. Like, are we using Jest? Are we using Mocha? Mm -hmm. Are we using Jasmine? Are we using Cypress? How is that compared to the Rails ecosystem in, or not the Rails ecosystem, the Ruby ecosystem in, in your opinion? So you still have those decisions in the Rails ecosystem. Uh, they're just uh, not quite as divergent. So you have testing built in to Rails, and then you have a, a library called Minitest and then RSpec, which are really the, the two main competitors. And you know, a, a lot of people will choose RSpec at this point, but it's much more like probably like a 50-40. The, I'd say like where it really shines, uh, you know, in the Rails ecosystem anyway, is the integration testing is very, very nice. Uh, you know, you they have this system called Capybara, which will wrap Selenium, which is a driver of browsers. And whenever you're you're running tests there, like the I'd say like the the best part of that is whenever you're running a test, it normally requires some sort of data. You know, unless you're running a test against like a HTML, like a static HTML page, <laughs> which, which I mean, is possible, but like not quite as much value. So like you have to have like an account and you have to have, you know, like a profile and, you know, like maybe some locations associated with you or something like that. And you're able to seed that directly from the test. And we use Cypress for testing our microservices. Uh, and, and that's been one of the more challenging things there. Like it's, I mean, the, the user experience for Cypress is just incredible. Whenever you're able to like just uh, it has like it, this UI, it's you know it's built in Electron where you're able to like go back in time and see like the different things and like picking a selector there is so nice because you're able to like click on a selector and be like this is the selector and it should have this word, but where that becomes hard is data, you know, getting data seeded and whenever you have many microservices that becomes really difficult, you know. Uh, especially whenever you have many microservices that aren't necessarily just Rails or Node, you know, it's uh, having to get the data up in a proper state is hard there. But with, with the trade-off of like it being a much better user experience, you know. Right. All right. So, and some of the, it sounds like some of the tools like Cypress integrate decently. I would, I would assume with just having it sit side by side with your Rails application. Then, 
Uh, yeah, I mean, you, yeah, there and there's actually a project for for Cypress with Rails. It, I mean, I think it's it seems more pro- prevalent in the the Node ecosystem. Okay. A while ago, episode uh, 124 of the show, we interviewed with Gleb Bakhmatov, VP of Engineering. I'll put a link in there. And he was talking about component tests with Vue. Have you gotten to experiment with any of that? No, we, we haven't we haven't tinkered with that. I, I've seen that for a while. Uh, right now, we use uh, Mocha and, and Karma for, for okay. that. And that's, you know, mostly so that our, you know, our developers can get a debugger in in the browser environment that they're running their tests on, you know, so like if they have a bug in Safari, they can, you know, just throw in a debugger on their test and, and see what's going on there. All right. That makes a lot of sense. Our team at this point is using Jest for the same kind of thing, but we're, we're using Cypress for the full end-to-end experience. Yeah. I, I think a lot about that because uh, I, I prefer Jest personally and, you know, maintaining like Karma with Mocha uh, has, has proven to be not awesome in terms of keeping all of that stuff running with like our uh, our vendor that runs on like various browsers you know right. uh, I, I i sometimes wonder if we would have i guess like more value for you know the business in general if we had stuck with just and just said hey you know we may get some weird bugs from time to time in mobile safari but that's probably going to happen anyway, and then we won't have to maintain all this stuff and, and have the you know there's a, there's a lot of constraints with Mocha and Karma that Jest just doesn't have. Right. It kind of goes back to that modularity thing as well, because with Mocha you do need the the assertion library on top of it. Yeah. Whereas yeah. Jest everything is kind of it's right there for you. You can bring in other libraries like um, Kenzie Dodd's testing library. I don't know if he actually wrote it. I'm pretty sure he does. He, he advocates it a lot, but you you don't necessarily need to if you don't want to. It's all it's all there for you with right. Jest. Yeah, I mean that that as much you know, and and also like I, I want to say one thing like I I do like JavaScript like so it, you know it it's probably like I I, I like the you know the concur- concurrency I like the language model I, I love all of that stuff about it, and I and I think what we're what we're hopefully going to see is a lot more of that convergence into you know, like a consistent way to do things like with Just. Uh, and I, mm-hmm. I think the more that we get that in the JavaScript community and still have like the, you know, the forward, you know, development, I, I think that's where JavaScript becomes just incredible. You know, like whenever all of these concerns are wrapped up, you know, you don't need a test runner and assertion library and like you know, way to mock and spy and all this stuff, you know. Yeah, yeah it's all just, every, it's a single cohesive tool that just yeah. does it for you. That makes sense. I'm curious, again, as you are both a Ruby and a JavaScript developer, how has, I'm not quite sure the right way to phrase it, how has one of those languages impacted your writing of the other language? So for example, with Ruby, it's very object-oriented. How has that impacted how you write JavaScript or view Uh, applications? Yeah, I think the things that influenced me for from Rails to JavaScript are whenever I'm building out a feature and, and most of my features end up being used by developers you know sometimes i get lucky and get to ship products but for the most part it's something that somebody's going to use in some capacity and I, I tend to focus a lot on how people will interact with it you know like testing is a first class concern of mine you know like i want people to be able to go in you know look at the api be able to extend it as they need and be able to test it in the way that they need to you know nor out of the box as much as possible and yeah, so I mean, the focus on APIs is, is huge there. 
And then from JavaScript into to Ruby, I think it's much more of like the, the functional approach, approach from JavaScript bleeds in quite a bit there. And then a functional approach, meaning, you know, like Ruby is object oriented, but they do have an, an enumerable module that makes things much more functional. And learning that, you know, because like really there's not a huge difference between OO and functional in the sense that like, you know, functional is just functions where data is injected and like OO is like an API around some data that is some functions. But before I got deep, deep into JavaScript, my Ruby would be heavily mutated. The wrappers would be huge and it would, you know, sometimes there would be way too much data that like an object is owning. So I find myself cutting to like the bare minimum that needs to be done for like a class a lot more. Yeah, those are the big things, I think. That's that's really helpful. Thank you. I end up kind of in the same camp. I'm I'm typically jumping between Java and C sharp for the for my object oriented languages. But I do the same thing where where the JavaScript's emphasis on functional programming directs me to write Java and C sharp that's more functional while still using object oriented in classes and just keeping keeping the classes as clean as possible. Yes. And also uh, one thing I missed there error handling. So I think my error handling got a lot better in Ruby after being deep in you know, JavaScript and, and Node for a while, just thinking of all of the edge cases that you normally, you because know, Ruby you know, is mostly like a, you know, I mean, technically they're both single threaded, but you know, they have like a global lock on in Ruby of only running one path at a time. So you don't have to deal with things like, you know, async promises, you know, resolving at some mm. point in the future and like your thing's still running. Right. Okay. I'm assuming in Ruby, you don't run into undefined is not a function though. Yeah, but there's a nil class error that's pretty much the exact same thing. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. so, so they're good friends. <laughs> they're very, very close friends. Yeah. Awesome. I think just to wrap it up, what are, what are some of the challenges that you've run into with Nuxt? Uh, going back to the Nuxt portion of this discussion. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, challenges that we run into, I mean, we, we have a, a big old app. We've we have, you know, and I mean, this isn't necessarily Nuxt's, you know, fault, I guess, but like with Webpack, the way that that ecosystem compiles your app, our our build time, our start time for a development server is just unacceptably long, I think. I'm talking like many, many minutes, even with optimizations that we've built in-house to load up just a small portion of an application as it comes in. So that's, and I, I think that's unacceptable. I mean, I'm pretty excited about Vite which is some stuff that's coming out of that Evan U's been doing and maybe finding a way to get that inside of like the Webpack ecosystem and invite is, so we're like Webpack will build your app and like, you know, you have this graph and you have to basically compile everything in order to understand what you need to like send to the, the front end in order for something to, to load like Vite just skips that whole thing and it's able to deliver your, your stuff to you really quickly. So it'd be pretty cool once, once there's some, I don't know, like coming, coming of age of that, product, you know, into Nuxt, I think that would be incredible. The build process will still be kind of hard, I think. I mean, outside of that, I mean, the the only other challenges are, are mostly that, you know, like our, our, our authentication system is a little bit more complex than probably most. So, you know, we have to maintain our, our own thing. But I mean, that, that's probably, that's going to be the case in, in any language. Like we have to do the same thing in Ruby, you know, so it's. Right. Okay, cool. And I'm, I'm assuming since since this migration, your team has seen the benefits, at least seen some benefits, I should say, of of switching over to Nuxt. Yeah, absolutely, uh, absolutely. Yeah, it's it, it's very very nice. You know, the the upgrade cycle is is much better. 
they release new features, which are things that we don't have to develop in-house that just show up. Uh, you know, examples of that were like Fetch, which was a feature that they released uh, not that long ago, and having that integrating with components, not having to build that from the ground up is awesome. And then uh, another one that I really like recently is runtime versus build time configuration, which is something that we've been thinking about a lot as we're starting to move away from using a, uh, like a, a Ruby-based build system to something like Kubernetes. Uh, that's going to be absolutely huge. And then, you know, fingers crossed uh, for having a way to have Vite in there. Like if, if they solve that, I might, I might send, uh, was it Sebastian, some, some cookies for Christmas or something like that. <laughs> I'm sure he'd appreciate it. <laughs> cool. Well, thank you so much, Austin. This has been a great discussion. I'm very glad that you were able to make it. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, of course. Hey, folks. I don't know if you've noticed, but I've been working a lot on figuring out how to help people become the most valuable developers on their teams or becoming the top 5% of developers in the field. If you're looking to level up, figure out how to contribute more, get the career you want, get the career that you want that will support the lifestyle you want, then you should check out the Most Valuable Dev Summit. I've invited some of my friends across the community, people that you've heard of, people that have worked on systems that you use on a daily basis, people who have invented new ways of doing things over the years in programming, and I've asked them one question, and that question is, how do you become a top 5% developer? How do you become one in 20 of the best developers out there? And so we're going to go ahead and have that conversation with them in interviews on the Most Valuable Dev Summit. And you can find that at summit.mostvaluable.dev. At this point, we will move into picks. Picks are the part of the show where we share things that we like with the community. It doesn't have to be programming related. Would you like to go first, Austin, or should I? Yeah, sure. I, I got a few. Okay. So the, the first one I want to pick was one of my favorite blogs, Joel on Software, from Joel Spassky. He's built you know, a few important things like Trello and Stack Overflow, but he has a, an awesome blog post called Things You Should Never Do, part one, as a software developer. And, you know, one of those things is a, a rewrite. I, I come back to that time and time again in my career. I've probably read this blog post, I don't know, maybe 50 or 60 times in my career. It's like, it's very, very good. Another one is like probably one of the, the better blogs that I've I've read for ECMAScript in general and how... JavaScript as a language works. I give it to you know any developers that are excited about JavaScript. It's by uh, Dmitry Shoshnikov. And his description of, especially like ES3, was huge whenever I was learning JavaScript. Uh, and most of that is still applicable today for the way that you know, just JavaScript as a language works. Having that sort of like deep knowledge, I find helps me whenever I'm having to, to do hard things, you know, especially like debugging. Uh, another one is uh, something that uh, we built at Doximity called Brownsy.com. It's, it's a free service that's out there. It's for virtual happy hours. Um, just on, on our team, uh, we used to get together for offsites every quarter, and we just we haven't had that. It's you know everybody's coping with uh, you know the pandemic as much as they can, but this has really helped really getting to know new people that I haven't had a chance to meet with in person, build relationships. So give that a check out. And then uh, the last one is. Uh, Doximity. So, I mean, if if what I'm talking about with building like hard things and and having to you know make Node and Express and View work and be awesome for developers that are coming from you know an ecosystem like Rails or Vue, uh, just check that out. It's work at .doximity.com. So, thank you. We'll make sure the links get into the show notes as well. 
cool. Thank you. Mm-hmm. All right. So for my pick today, I have been reading some stories to my daughter and she, she is five years old. She absolutely loves reading as I think most children do. And recently what we've been reading is the wayside school books. So I'm going to pick those. Uh, it is a series of four books. The first one is just called sideways stories from wayside school. The latest actually came out in March this year, and it was very aptly named Wayside School Under a Cloud of Doom. Uh, I think I actually picked it around the time that it came out. I can't remember, but I'm picking it again because we're going through them again. Uh, The entire series is excellent. It's about a school that was built sideways. So instead of being one story tall with 30 classrooms, it is 30 stories tall with one classroom on each floor. The uh, architect said he was very sorry. And the 19th floor is missing. And he's very sorry. And it's just kind of the crazy adventures that these kids go through on the 30th story. I highly recommend the entire series if you have children to read to. The other pick I have will also be reading, but I recently picked up Refactoring UI by Adam Wathen, and I have been enjoying that as I go through it. It goes very, it, it's, it's pretty easy to read. It's not like a long, detailed technical manual of how to build UIs, because that's not how UIs work. They do very simple, do this, don't do this, and explaining why. It's very visual, which is good for a UI book. And I've just been really enjoying going through it and and upping my game on UI development, coming primarily from the data side and back end to front end. It's nice to have that viewpoint that explains why things look good and why things work. And it's it's definitely been helping as, as I build out different UIs for projects. So refactoring UI by Adam Wathen and Steve Sugar. Austin, how can people reach out to you if they want to continue this conversation? Where where are you on the internet? Uh, Twitter's the best spot. Ostio36. That's A-U-S-T-I-O 36. Excellent. Thank you. And I hope you all enjoyed this episode today. You can find us at Views on View or at viewsonview.com or devchat.tv. All of those work. And you can find me personally on Twitter at Lindsay K. Wardell. Hope you enjoyed this episode and we'll see you again next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.